when, when was the last time somebody asked you to do something? Apart from like two seconds ago. When was the last time somebody asked you to do something? Maybe it was at work and a supervisor assigned a project. Maybe it was where you live and somebody you live with asked you to clean something, move something. Maybe it was a neighbor who needed help. When was the last time somebody asked you to do something? And how helpful was that request? What do I mean by that? How helpful was that request? Have you ever experienced somebody who, you know, they mean well, but whenever they ask you to do something, it's like, whoa, this is really demanding. Oh my gosh. This quadrant, it might look familiar if you've been here for a really long time. We had a series called What is the Bible? This was taken from when we went through the book of Revelation. So if you move to the left in the horizontal axis of this quadrant, that means the heading left means we get less challenging. So there's fewer requests. If we move to the right, there's more challenges, more requests. So, and if you move on the vertical axis, up and down, if we go up, that's love. So someone loves you a lot. If you go up, someone doesn't really love you that much if you go down. Now, if you look with me at the top left, that says cozy. What does that mean? That means that you're not really getting challenged, but you really are loved on a lot. What does that look like? Those are the 35-year-olds that live in mom and dad's basement. And they really just have no ambition, can't get it together. But mom and dad don't want to say anything because if we speak too harshly, they may never talk to us again. So we'll never challenge them. That's high love, low challenge. The word cozy, I'm just trying to be nice. It, it is cozy, but it also stifles creativity, murders growth. Does anybody want to live in a high love, low challenge environment? Well, a couple of you do, but you don't really want to live there. The one right below that is a low challenge, low love environment, and we just call that boring. Nobody really sticks around in those environments unless you're crazy polite. In an environment where people don't really care about you, they also don't really help you grow, it's really boring. Why do we stick around? Many of us have experienced the bottom right, a high challenge, low love environment. That might be the boss at work who just demands something out of you. Or the person you live with who you know that they care about you, but they, they haven't said it in a while and they've just made a lot more requests than they have investments in the relationship. That would be in the bottom right. And harsh can be how you experience that. At, the, at best, it's stressful. And at worst, it can become abusive. Anybody want to live in that quadrant? Okay. Based on your confession of faith, I'm hearing you say we want to live in the top right quadrant. That is a high love, high challenge environment. That's where you're with people. You know they see you. They care about you. They know your name, for goodness sakes. They, they know what you like. They see you. They feel things with you. And they also challenge you. They tell you the truth. Anybody want to live there? Nobody. Where would you want to live? Where do you want to live? 
Top right. I want to live in the top right. When we're loved and when we're challenged, that empowers growth. We want to be a church that lives there. So, as we jump back in the Gospel of John, we are reading a passage where Jesus goes into a temple, turns over tables, grabs a rope, makes a whip, and drives things out of the temple with said whip. Some time goes by, his disciples reflect on that situation, and they say, oh yeah, we know why he did that. Zeal for the temple consumed him. So we're introduced right away in John's gospel to a Jesus who sees worship happening in the temple, isn't too thrilled with it, flips a table, makes a whip. What quadrant does that sound like to you? Ooh, right. Welcome to church. So many of us think that that lower right quadrant is where God lives. And so when we read a text, like the one we're about to read, where Jesus goes into the temple and he flips tables, we're like, knew it, knew it. That's just what God's like. He's, he's just on the edge, ready to freak out at us. He's mad at us. He doesn't like us. It's a harsh, stressful way to live your Christian life. How do you relate to a God like that? How, I mean, you, you shouldn't doubt because that God probably doesn't like doubt, but you don't want to get too comfortable because that could seem like you're imposing something. So where do you live? How do you relate to a God like that? This morning, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is flipping more than tables. Jesus, when he walks into the temple and sees things not as they are, is not acting out of a place of just pure rage and harshness and mowing over people's agency. That's not at all what's happening here. It's actually quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. And if you're open to diving into the text, you're going to actually get your view of God challenged. Most of us, I, I went to seminary. I get paid to think about these things. And deep in my heart, there is a fear. Does God really like me? Is he just waiting to punish me? How does God feel about me? When God asks me to do something, he's like, do it. I'm like, why? Because I'm God. You're welcome. How should we relate to God? And what does Jesus flipping tables have anything to do with that? See, part of the problem I have when we read the Bible is we read wild accounts, totally wild accounts, and we're like, yeah, that sounds about right. Jesus goes into a temple and flips a table. It's a normal thing to do. Jesus flipping a table is the equivalent of you getting pulled over by a police officer, getting out of your car, and you're saying, hello, officer. I'd take that badge. Woo! Like, what are you doing? shove It's the equivalent of you getting audited by the IRS, and the IRS agent is flipping through your receipts, and you take them and you crumple them up. And you go out and you key their car. This is odd behavior. It's extreme behavior. We read it, we're like, yeah, Jesus flipped tables at the temple. You know why he did that? He wanted to show us he had emotions. 
It's very true Jesus had emotions. We just finished an emotion series. We're not like flipping the switch like, now emotions are bad. No, no, no. Jesus had emotions, but he didn't go into the temple and say, you know what? I'm very concerned. About 2,000 years from now, they're going to make a movie about me. And in that movie, I'm going to look very stoic and like I have no emotions. So you know what I need to do? I need to show them I have emotions. I'll, you know, I'll know what I'll do. I'll flip a table. That is not the primary thing Jesus is trying to do. What's he trying to do? He's poking the bear. Some of the New Testament writers, their favorite way to describe Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation. That's temple language. In order for Jesus to be the stone that the builders rejected, he must first be rejected. So Jesus marches in to the center of religious life and pokes the bear. He is running toward his own death. John's gospel is all about a marriage proposal. It starts in chapter 2 with Jesus at a wedding. And the question that we're left with is, will you join in a relationship with Jesus that's a spiritual marriage? And it ends at a beach where Jesus is with Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? And the question we have as readers is, do we love him? Will we pledge him our allegiance? So he's just made this marriage proposal in John chapter 2. He's saying, will you marry me? Will you give me your allegiance? And what's the very next thing he does after this marriage proposal? He pushes a police officer and he keys the IRS agent's car. He's poking the bear. Right out of the gate, John wants us to see this. He wants us to look through the whole gospel through a lens that Jesus' love for us is a love so deep that he's not just willing to meet our needs. He is running after the ability to meet our needs at great cost to himself, his own life. Why? Because zeal for your house consumes me. We have to talk about what that means before we look at the text. We live in a post 9-11 world. Ever since September 11th, 2001, when you talk about religious zealots and religious fundamentalists, you feel uneasy. See? Now, we read in the gospel accounts a Jesus who is zealous, who makes a whip, and who chases people out of the temple. And we're like, ah, what is this? What's happening? What zeal means is it's an intense, positive interest. Jesus didn't have the same baggage we had. He's able to use words, and he's not, he's not thinking through the same lens as we are. So we're like, whoa, can we use a different word here, Jesus? He, this is a long time, and this is a long time after. The, the things our culture struggles with, Jesus doesn't have the same struggles. So when Jesus says, I have this intense craving, this drive, what's it for? God's house, zeal for your house. That is shorthand for saying this, zeal for God's presence drove Jesus. 
on his deathbed, Dallas Willard, who's a, a very famous spiritual teacher of the early 2000s, on his deathbed, Dallas Willard gave a battle cry that I'm like, I'll do that. Dallas said this, somebody ought to develop a soteriology of attachment. Like, what? What is he saying? What's he saying? Dallas is saying this. We talk a lot about gospel, good news, and we're right to talk about that. But what if the good news isn't just that God forgives you? We're ready to go. What if the good news is that we get to be with God? We get to be loved by God. We get to live in his presence. We get to walk with him. We get to know him. We get to cultivate a relationship. That's the gospel. I've told this story before. Some neighborhoods in Colombia, not many, have these things called street sweeping. In Los Angeles, every neighborhood has them. And you have to do math to figure out where to park on your own street. And so I, in my apartment, I parked our church van. It's a lot like Pastor Marshall's famous van. I had that parked in the apartment. I had a breakfast at my house. We're all hanging out. And then it's 9 o'clock. Oh, no. I've got to move the van. The street sweepers are coming. I run out to move it. The police officer is printing the ticket on her evil device. I don't know what it was. And I was like, wait, wait. I know you hear this all the time, but I promise I'll move it right now. And she goes, okay. I was like, yes. Wow. I just saved 50 bucks. This is fantastic. My life is so good. You know what I did not do? I did not love that police officer. Why would I? That's super weird. I did not want to know her. I did not want to have a relationship with her. The judge forgave me. And I was like, great, thanks. And I go on with my life. If your understanding of who God is, is that God is mad at you, but Jesus comes just to forgive you of your sins, so now God is not mad at you, you are missing what Jesus has in mind when he says, I come to bring you good news. Is what I said, is there a ton of truth in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're going to write me emails saying like, you don't believe in atonement, I absolutely do. It's central to my theology. In my place, condemned he stood. Absolutely believe that. But the gospel is not just, you're forgiven, we're good to go. The gospel is God saying, I am for you. I'm coming after you. I'm on your side and I'm relentless. That is what Jesus is doing when he's flipping tables. Oh, and we struggle to believe that. We struggle to believe that because none of us have experienced relationships like that. Robert Putnam, in his classic work, Bowling Alone, talks about how we are just frayed as a society at the edges. And what does Putnam say, is, blames this fraying on? Is it politics? Is it social media? Mm-mm. Isolation. In 1972, 1972, you know what was going on in 1972? America was so divided. Watergate, it was wild. The Vietnam War is still, there's still stuff happening. It's a terribly divisive time. But in 1972, members of the greatest generation, baby boomers and the silent generation, in a survey said that they all have, on average, about three confidants. What's a confidant? A confidant is someone who is a friend that you know. And you trust this friend. You share things with this friend. You tell them secrets. 
You tell them disappointments. When your spouse is being a jerk, you call this person. And you're like, my spouse is being a jerk. Fast forward to just a couple years ago. They asked millennials and Gen Z, how many confidence do you have? You know what they self-reported? None. That's alarming. We live in a society where we are growing more and more alone by the minute. You know what's good news for an isolated society? That Jesus is so for us that he's willing to poke the bear because he craves you experiencing God's presence. And this, this question I have this morning, I just have one question. What if, what if Jesus wants us to experience God's presence? Not what if Jesus allows us to experience God's presence. Not what if Jesus is okay with you experiencing God's presence. What if Jesus wants? What if Jesus desires? What if he craves you, me, normal folks experiencing God's presence? What would that change? What would look different? What quadrant would you live in if that was true for you? What quadrant would we constantly be invited back into if that's true? That's the lens we're going to look at John chapter 2 through. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 2. We're starting in verse 13. I'm going to offer some commentary on the way through because there's just too much in this passage for us to, we're going to, we, you would miss lunch. The, the Presbyterians would beat you to Applebee's, okay? I want to get you to Applebee's first. So we're going to, I'm going to make some commentary and we're going to dive into this text. John chapter 2, starting in verse th 13. When it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple is. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting on tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. John's gospel is the only gospel that records the whip. The other three don't. But listen very carefully. Because that's scary. It's like, what is he doing? Listen very carefully. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple. Like, what? Listen very carefully. Who are those all? Both sheep and cattle. The text is very clear. It's even clearer in Greek. Jesus doesn't go after people. He's getting the sheep and the cattle out of the temple. Which would have been horrifying if you know there's steps going up into the temple. I don't know if you ever tried to get a cow to go upstairs. It would have been wild. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. There goes budget. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all this? In John's gospel, Jesus never condemns curious people who ask for a sign. Never, not once. I think it's easy to read this and hear, oh, they don't believe him, they're, they're challenging him. I don't think that's what's happening. This was wild. He just keyed the IRS agent's car and then he claimed, I have authority to do this. Like, well, can you show us? Here's what he says. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. That's the real sign he's giving. They replied, ah, uh, 
it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many saw the signs he was performing and would believe in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we jump into this passage. Father, Father, it's hard for us to believe good news often. It's just not been our experience. Expand our imaginations. Open our hearts. I pray for those who just feel so distant from you that they would feel the invitation from your desire to be with us. May I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do I get this idea that Jesus is poking the bear? It's a pretty bold claim. How do I know he's actually poking the bear? Well, we're in John chapter 2. It may feel like we're just jumping into the book because we've been out of it for several weeks. But John chapter 2 is, comes after John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, a different John, makes several claims about Jesus. When he first sees him, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! It's the Lamb of God! What's the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God is the Passover Lamb. So John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he doesn't just do that once. He does it each time he sees him. Again, in, in uh, verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now what's happening? Uh, when Jesus heads up into the temple at Passover, we get this statement that he is going into the temple. He's going in at what time? What's the, what time of year is Jesus heading into the temple? At Passover. So he's been identified as the Passover lamb. Now it's Passover and he's going into the temple. And John makes that clear. Again, he says, he reminds us at the end of the passage. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... So this experience is bookended on, here's a lamb going to Passover. What do you do at Passover? You kill the lamb. Another example of how Jesus intentionally knew that he was poking the bear. When they asked for a sign, they say, hey, give us a sign that we know you can really do this. He said, okay, kill me. Like, what? Why did he say that? Destroy this temple. He's saying, how, how do you want to know that I really am God's son? If you kill me, I'm going to raise again in three days. He's throwing it down. So he's identified as the Passover lamb. He goes into Jerusalem at Passover. They ask for a sign. He says, okay, kill me. And they're like, well, what? Like, they don't get it. And then we go back to talking about Passover. Jesus is poking the bear. In order for him to be the stone that the builders rejected, he must first be rejected. All the other gospel accounts record Jesus cleansing the temple near the end of Jesus' ministry. John, the gospel writer, most certainly does not record Jesus' life in order. And this is a great example. They would not have, nobody would have allowed, just watched Jesus do this and go, oh, I guess we'll see you next Passover. Like they just would not let him do that and then continue to go around teaching for three years. He's throwing down the gauntlet. And John wants us to see right away why is Jesus doing this? And why is he doing everything he's doing? Because he said, hey, will you marry me? Will you give me your allegiance? And we're like, why? 
Why would I do that? Because you're God? No, because I'm going to die for you. Because I'm going to meet your needs. I'm going to move toward you. We have not experienced love like that. Even if you lived your life, even if you were one of those people who lived your life in the top left, in just the cozy, high love, low challenge, it is very rare for someone to, to harm themselves for your good to the point where they, they lose their own life. It happens. I'm not denying the fact that it happens, but it doesn't happen for healthy reasons. It, there's a lot of unhealth where you get to that point. Jesus is a healthy person and he's running toward death for us. Why would he do that? He answers that question. Why would he do that? Because zeal, an intense, positive interest for God's presence consumes him. And the temple at this point in Israel's history had become religiously corrupt. They had made deals with Rome like, we're not going to really challenge people. We're not going to be a, a nuisance to Rome. Just let us do what we're doing. And so instead of people experiencing God's presence there, they're experiencing other things. And what Jesus gets so worked up about is, no, no, no. I want people to experience God's presence. So he acts like an Old Testament prophet. Old Testament prophets would often do things as object lessons to really teach powerful truths. So for example, Ezekiel lays on his side for about 600 days shaves half his beard, throws the other half into the wind. Also, God tells him to cook bread. Some of you hipsters have had it, Ezekiel bread. You haven't had real Ezekiel bread, though, because real Ezekiel bread was cooked over manure. Oh, yeah, that's right. Not so cool now, huh? And, just fun fact, God told Ezekiel to cook it over human manure, and Ezekiel's like, no. And he's like, fine, cow. I don't, I mean, I'm not being, this is not a paid advertisement for Ezekiel bread, but... Not that cool now, huh? <laughs> Jesus is acting like an Old Testament prophet. You're like, what's he doing? Why is he trying to do this? He's so serious. Life is just about God's presence. We crave presence. Part of the reason we're so miserable, what Putnam points out, is that we don't experience presence. We're not seen. We're hurt. People hurt us. And we look for people to help us. And the people we look to help us are distracted. And we're like, yeah. That makes sense, right? I'm, yeah, why would they care about me? I mean, that makes sense. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, God's not like that. You may have experienced the cold shoulder of people who claim to love you. I'm not like that. I'm moving towards you at great cost to myself. And so if the word zeal still trips you up, zeal does not harm. Zeal in the Hebrew Bible, more often than not, takes harm in the place of another. Look at the original passage that Jesus quotes us from, Psalm 69, 9. This is talking about David. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those reproaching you have fallen on me. What's he saying? I'm so zealous for your presence that people who don't like you don't like me. He's saying, I'm taking harm on myself. And when Jesus says, zeal for your house consumes me, he's saying, I am signing up to meet your needs no matter the cost. No matter the cost. I am for you. I am here to meet your needs. What's our need that Jesus is trying to meet? God's presence. Presence. God's presence shaped Jesus' identity. 
I don't know what shapes your identity, what you get most pride in, the, the coolest thing about you. But what shaped Jesus' identity was the fact that he was the place where God dwelled. Look at what he says again in verse 19. Jesus answered, destroy this temple. A temple in any religious environment, any religious environment is where God lives. How does Jesus think about himself? I'm the place where God lives. I'm God's presence. He's saying, if you destroy that, you can't. I'll come right back. God's presence shapes Jesus' identity. And so he sees the place where we're supposed to be experiencing God's presence. And that's not what's happening. In all the other gospel accounts, Jesus gets really mad because they're in the court of the Gentiles. And it's the Gentiles who are not allowed to come in and worship. And that's what makes Jesus so upset. Outsiders, people far from God, don't know how to get back. And you're blocking the entrance. <laughs> Here, in John's, in John's account of this, it's for all of us. So whether you're near to God or you're far from God, Jesus is passionately committed to you experiencing God's presence. How does that change? What would that change about our life? What would that change if we really believe that the God of the universe wants not to just to know us, but to be with us? When we're afraid, he wants us to bring those fears to him. When we're troubled, he wants us to process that with him. He wants that. He wants to know, he wants to know us and be known by us. He wants relationship. What would that change? Everything. I do think so. I really do. I, I'm not, some, some people have like worried, like, is there something behind the curtain? Like, you know, you, you guys are talking about stuff and then you're going to, ha ha, we're really harsh here. That, this is what drives me. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. I experienced a Christianity for the first 25, 27, 20, I have no idea, many, many years of my life. I experienced a Christianity that taught God is really mad at you. God is really mad at you, so he sent Jesus, and if you trust Jesus, he's less mad at you, but you can either, if you doubt it, that's really bad, but if you kind of really embrace it, that's also kind of bad, so just kind of just be. It's very confusing, and then we get to heaven, it all gets sorted out. And you're just left with, I don't know how to relate to this God, but I know it's important, so I'm going to just be really committed to this. And it's really confusing. But the whole story of Scripture is a story about we start in God's presence, a garden. The presence is lost. And what's God's first move? Toward us. If God didn't want to be with us, he's like, see, knew it. They couldn't handle it. But he moves toward us and he asks a relational question. Where are you? The original man and woman, the verb for how they related to God, it says that God walked with them. It doesn't just mean physically walked. It meant lived with, dwelled with, spent time with. That gets lost. See, I don't believe that people who don't know God don't experience love, don't experience joy, don't do good things, don't contribute to society. I don't believe that for a second. I do believe that people who are far from God, who don't know God, live very meaningful lives that contribute a lot to society. And I think that everything they're seeking, oh, all those desires and more are met when the God of the Bible finds you and says, I'm for you. All those desires. 
we distort our desires, there's, there's a good thing under there. And when we meet God, we see, oh, that's what I wanted. So how do we be people who, with distorted desires, who have a hard time seeing and trusting that God really does want to be with us? How do we be people who really cultivate and experience his presence? Throughout church history, there's been two rhythms that people have embraced to truly experience God's presence. Two rhythms, fasting and feasting. Fasting, before we talk about what fasting is, I have to just say a quick word. If you believe that God lives in that bottom right quadrant, that he's harsh, stressful, and abusive, fasting is terrible. He's like, yeah, God doesn't want you to be happy. So what do you like? Well, let's take that out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now you're growing. <laughs> but if we really believe that God lives in the top right quadrant, fasting becomes something a little bit different. And fasting, there, there's just a danger. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, don't just like get all miserable. And, oh, this is so hard. That's not his desire for us. What fasting is, it, it, like many of us think of fasting, like our imagination by that is shaped by the Da Vinci Code. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but does anyone remember that like 2006 crime thriller by Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code? There's a character in there played by that guy from the Avengers, and he's in a hotel and he's whipping himself. Whoosh, right? It's gross. That's asceticism. That's not fasting. Let me give you some examples of what fasting can look like. What is fasting? We all know that we crave relationships. Social media can be fantastic for relationships. Lots of people can connect around similar shared values, shared interests, but we all know, we all know there's like a line that when we cross, when social media goes from like fun and relationally connected to coping. We walk into a room, the room feels awkward, grab your phone, see what's going on on Facebook. So what can fasting look like? Deleting social media off of our phones for a season. For a season is a very key prepositional phrase in that sentence. I'm not saying, you want to be godly? Delete social media. I'm not saying that for a second. I'm saying fasting can look like, I want to be present. I want to be present to God and others, and Jesus was all about that. So I'm going to, for a season, fast social media and just see what happens. Pick a start time, pick an end time. If, if you're like nervous that you're going to really quickly go into an unhelpful way of fasting, you're going to, you're going to veer toward asceticism, a day, a morning, pick a small time. And just note, how did I feel during that time? Was I anxious? Did I feel like I was missing out on something? Was I calm? Was I more present? And then invite Jesus into that. And you're experiencing presence. That's a way we can fast. Another way we can fast is solitude. Again, podcasts, audiobooks, not bad. Music, none of it's bad. Solitude, what I mean by solitude is we just take a season where there's no inputs. Where we're not receiving sound, we're just alone with our thoughts. And I say a season. The Desert Fathers, there's a lot of wisdom that came out of it, but I really struggle with like, how is that good? Like we're called to be relational and you're like, bye! That's not what I'm saying when I call it into solitude. We do solitude for relationships. Solitude serves our presence. We go through crazy experiences. Did anyone go to Art in the Park yesterday? It was a crazy experience. It's a thousand degrees. You got to walk crazy far. You're being like pressured into buying something that's kind of cool but really expensive. And you're sweating. Your kid's dying. Water's a thousand dollars. 
And then you just go on to the next thing. That's how we live our lives. We get yelled at by a coworker, on to the next thing. You know what? The body keeps the score. That all that stress, it's still in there. And what solitude can do is just, oh, oh yeah, that's there. And I've been coping and I've been burying. Oh. And it lets us come back to ourselves, be present, and be present to God and be present to others for a season. Please do not hear me say, like all you introverts, like, yes! I get to be away from everybody. No, no, that's not what we're, in, that's not what we're saying. Another way we can practice fasting is through generosity. Generosity. First service struggled with this. Please, is it wrong to buy things for yourself? No. Okay, thank you. I was like, what? No. If you like Nintendo Switch and you buy Nintendo Switch games, that's not wrong. If you like cold brew coffee and on your way to work you buy cold brew coffee, that's not wrong. It is not wrong to buy things for ourselves. And it is good and beautiful to take seasons where we, we take what's good and right and we don't do it for a season and we do something else with that money. Where we're generous. Where we see somebody in need and we're like, can I meet that? That'd be super cool. That does something to us. That creates a presence. You want to be present? Give your money away. You, it'll wake you up real fast. And Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart's somewhere, pretty sure you're going to be present. It's not just money too, it can be time. I'm going to go be with somebody. I'm going to be generous with my time. I'm going to be generous with my presence. What would it be like to be with somebody who's not going to be distracted by social media, who's had time to actually think about their life, and who's just like, I'm just going to be generous with this afternoon. It's all yours. That could be a corrective emotional experience. Putnam, the way he describes society, it's terrifying, and he has stats to back it up, and he's of sound mind. He talks about society being, it's just, it's at the edges, it's just fringing, because we, America was built on kind of these two ideals, individualism and community participation. And one of those died, and one of those got ramped up. Do you know anybody in the Elks Lodge? Do you know anybody that goes to rotary meetings? No. In 1961, Time Magazine wrote an article that they said the greatest threat facing America, the, this is in the height of the Cold War, by the way, the greatest threat facing America, do you know what it was? Too much leisure time. What? That is on nobody's list today. They're like, what is everyone going to do with their time? What did the greatest generation do? What did the silent generation do? They volunteered. They served. All around the country, these social capital, they're shutting down. And what people are saying, like the, the NAACP, all these really important pieces of our community, shutting down. And what do they say? I guess kids these days just don't join things. We live in a fractured and fraying society. What if we could be the change that we crave? What if we could be people who fast to experience more presence? I don't want you to think, though, that fasting is the only rhythm we need. We also need feasting. When Jesus comes back and takes his bride to heaven, what's the very first thing we do? A marriage supper. We have a party. And so we should be people who are very comfortable with parties. 
Throw a cocktail party for your friends. It will shock them. Why are these people so present? Have a dinner party. Why? Because people aren't doing it. The title of the book is called Bowling Alone. Have you ever done that? I can't imagine that's a good time. It's not fun bowling with people. <laughs> Dinner with friends is a way we can be a counterculture. And we're like, what's going on? Oh, we're all about presence. All about, we believe God is present to us. We want to be present to you. Vacation and rest is another way we can be people who feast. We go through life at just a million miles a minute. You know, since... The 1970s, Richard Nixon believed that we were headed to a four-day work week. He believed it was imminent because of technology. We have more technology and way less rest. Not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you checked your email over the weekend and you know you didn't need to? You're just like, I just want to just update, see if I missed anything. We're all guilty of this. What's a way we can fight back? Vacation and rest. Just being present. And the other thing we can do is celebration days. What are celebration days? Celebration days are rhythms that we can learn to be present by just filling it with things we love. People we love and things we love. And the reason we make such a big deal out of presence is because we want to be people who are alive and aware. I don't, I don't know what quadrant you grew up in, how you experienced authority, how you experienced relationships in your life, how you experienced the people who were supposed to care for you. I don't know which one you grew up in. But at times, for every single person in this room, we've all been disappointed. We've all looked to someone for, I need you to do something. I need you to be something for me right now. And they disappoint us. And we all walk through life with the pain of that disappointment. Presence is a corrective emotional experience. Presence can heal the past pain of disappointment. When we feel we haven't been seen and we share that with someone who sees, who understands, that's where healing can take place. There was a concert in Amsterdam about 20 years ago where every musician's worst nightmare took place. There's a famous uh, conductor and a famous pianist. I believe they're playing Mozart's Concerto in D minor. I don't know if that's a real thing. I just, that's what people in the hallway were saying from the last service. I think that's what they're playing. And the pianist had prepared for that, uh, her, her solo. I don't know if you know what a solo is, but there's nowhere to hide in a solo. You're it. And so she prepared for her solo. And again, every musician's worst nightmare. When the music starts, it's a different musical piece than what she prepared. And you can see her panic. Just freak out. But I want you to also notice what presence can do. She's fearful. She's panicking. I don't know what this could mean for her career. Her imagination might be running wild. But watch what happens when a non-anxious presence sees her. All right, Jordan, cue it up. Mahler was a great Mozart conductor. And by putting together Mahler with Mozart, there is an affinity. 
the mood, like the tragic mood of a trower march at the beginning, and all this, the first moment of the D minor concerto uh, of Mozart, is an obsession led by syncopated rhythm of the strings, of uh, um, nowhere, uh, feeling nowhere, loneliness, despair, is extremely dramatic, the meaning of the first moment of the D minor concerto. because she was expecting us to play another concerto. So when I started the first bar of the D minor concerto, she kind of jumped and panicked, like, uh, like, uh, like an electric shock, I think. And she couldn't, she couldn't uh, consider even moving ahead playing, you know. And then, then we talked a moment, and she told me I was expecting to play a completely different piece. I do what I can do, if I remember. And the miracle is that she has such a memory that she could, within a minute, switch to a new concerto without making one mistake. musician talking to a conductor. I don't know if that's like a normal thing. Probably not. But he says, play it like you did last year. You did it so well. Calm as a cucumber. Now, he rightly credits her amazing memory and all this, but memory is a very difficult thing to tap into when you're fearful. Chaos. Utter chaos. I have an ulcer just watching that. But presence can bring beauty out of chaos. We haven't been loved like we should have. Fact. And that brings pain. And God's presence 
is a corrective emotional experience. God's presence corrects the damage sin has done. Or as Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As a church, we want to be a place where we can say, God, your passion consumes us. Because we just want to live there. So I don't know where you came in this morning, but I just want to take the next, the last song, the next few minutes, and I just want to be open to his presence. Be present right now in this moment. That he is inviting us. He craves, he desires. What if the answer to Putnam's bowling alone and Jesus flipping tables, what if they can meet in the presence of God? We crave presence. God craves presence. Let's meet together right now. God, God, we feel so alone. It feels like false hope to believe that your presence can be with us, that you really are Emmanuel, God with us, that you promised never to leave or forsake us, or that your closing words to us were, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God, we, we're, we're struggling. God, I pray that you would turn struggle into cautious optimism. And as we sing and have words sung over us right now, I pray that you would flip some tables in our hearts, that we would be open to your presence right now. In Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.